Welcome to the St Albans podcast, bringing you news, views and reviews for the city and district of St Albans. Welcome along to another edition of the St Albans podcast with Matt Adams and Danny Smith. Hi. Hello. How's it going? Yeah, yeah, you know, it's all right. Um, you know, it's uh, Matt has almost as a, like, a, I guess it could be a, a team team building or a bonding exercise. We went to the cinema together, didn't we, the other day? We did. We saw a classic movie. This isn't the movies podcast, if you're thinking, oh, no, I've got the wrong one. But but, but I thought I'd just mention it because it was a, a classic thing. We, we went to see Jules, didn't In we? In 3D, no less. Yeah. No, it was, I thought it was, the 3D was brilliant. It really did, you did feel like you were there on board the Orca. <laughs> Especially cut sharp, like smash through the window. And yeah. Well, one of the things I found really weird is the experience, and that this says something about us as Brits, I suppose, is that there was a, pic- a problem with the picture, wasn't there, to begin with, and it looked like no one was going to do and say anything. And I said to you, that doesn't look right, does it? Well, it's, yeah, it sort of looked like there was a curtain over part of the screen. Yeah, then, so uh, they hadn't it. opened it properly, it, it, and, and we couldn't tell what it was initially. It was only when they moved it back, you could see the way it sort of rippled in the, in the sort of shadow that that was a curtain they were pulling across. And he thought, I wonder how, like, would we have put up with the whole movie like that? I reckon most people would have done. Yeah. Yeah. So they would have me to thank for that. I was a hero. You were. Yeah. Thank you. But, uh, but yeah. I, do, I just remember years back, a friend of mine saying he went to see a movie and after about five minutes, he said he thought there's something wrong with his eyes because it was just out of focus. He couldn't, it was very, it was not at all a sharp, clear image. And then, word, you know, the title started coming up on the screen and they were really blurry. And then he, he, he and he said it, he left it another 10 minutes and eventually <laughs> went and found someone. And then they just turned the lens and boom, <laughs> crystal clear. And he just said, it's a typical thing. Like everyone just sat there polite thinking, well, if it's a problem, <laughs> someone will sort it. Yeah, no but, one likes to get involved. No, no one's make a fuss. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, but, but that was a good experience. Um, and I don't know why I really mentioned it. I just thought it's it colour. Yes, it does. Yeah. Um, but uh, there does seem increasingly to be classic movies that are getting re-released in the cinema. And I think it's something that might be worth looking at if, uh, you know, if you've never seen, I don't know, Ghostbusters or seeing Indiana Seeing Jones some of those or, things on the big screen is a whole new experience. It really is. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, and I think it's well worth doing it. Um, and, and, and it's good that cinemas are doing it more and more. The Odyssey, of course, was spoiled somewhat. They do it all the time. Um, but, but now some of the big cinemas are doing it as well. Yeah, I think it's because they're releasing a lot of stuff on better quality, you know, sort of production, like 4K and stuff like that. Yeah. So they've got the prints that work on that sort of scale again yeah yes yes so it, it, it looks good in that yeah. I mean, we, we didn't go to see it in this but we could have seen it in imax where the screen's what, like three or four times the size of a regular cinema screen and when you when you view an image that big the image has to be such of such good quality otherwise yeah. it degrades when yeah. it's made bigger and 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 i can only imagine how impressive jaws would have been on that size screen but uh, but there you go um, and if you've not seen jaws before the shark dies at the end <laughs> Spoiler alert. There you go. Save a few quid. <laughs> right. Anyway, uh, on, the, uh, on the podcast today, coming up, we're going to be hearing from Claire Hobber, who is our very own literary correspondent, because that's how highbrow we are. And, uh, and this month, she has chosen a few biographies to, uh, to discuss as well. And she talks about why memoirs are, are a good read. But before that, let's look at some local news stories. So, Matt. Right. Well, it has been a strange week for us. Um, my Thursday, which is the beginning of our week, because we go to press on a on a Wednesday afternoon. Um, my Thursday started being populated with meetings um, on the um, on the afternoon, uh, um, as news of um, the fact that Queen was very ill sort of started filter through. Um, we, you know, we're sort of 
prepared a lot for these sort of big events we know what what we're doing um where we you know we we have um photos already um ready to go for any re- re- sort of tribute pieces but um you know we were and as as the announcement came out for Buckingham Palace we were you know across uh, Hertfordshire all the different newspaper groups um uh, sorry newspapers that um cover the area sprang to action really and we were you know we did a live blog and we were sort of publishing all, all the tributes as they came in our daisy cooper mp she was the very first person like literally minutes afterwards so she'd but people you know if if you had any sense and then you know as you saw how things were unfolding um then you know people should be writing away and you know the that's that's how the, the whole week sort of unfold really you know after the, the queen died it was just you know what how do we approach something like this and um you know the 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 news cycle has been very very quiet shall we say um a lot of what you typically expect i mean no one was writing letters for example um i don't think i think people just wanted to that moment of sort of reverence really mm. um but there were things still things going on i mean a, a lot of the churches have been um holding special services um, we had the big um, proclamation in um, St Albans uh, on uh, Sunday to uh, announce the reign of the new king. Did I see a video of that where they got the name wrong? I didn't see that video. Have you, you heard about this? No. Uh, I think they, they proclaim Lord Charles III. Oh, really? <laughs> That's what it sounded like yeah. on the video yeah. from the high... So it was whoever was doing that, whether that be the mayor? The mayor maybe? was doing... Uh, Jeff Harrison. Yeah, it was somebody from up, you know, like uh, from that sort of upper level of the, the, the town hall or the, the museum and gallery. And, and yeah, it, it very much sounded like he said, you know, proclaiming Lord Charles III, oh not, not King Charles. But no. I don't know if that is some sort of legal loophole now. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> no. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is... Um, is it difficult to gauge the tone when this sort of thing happens? Um, well, I have, I cover the um, I edit the Well in Hat for Times as well, and um, the I think the two papers are, are, are slightly different. One was, I mean, you know, the approach we sort of with Well in is a bit more God bless you, ma'am, and St Albans is a bit more St Albans is a bit more um, liberal anyway with a small L. And, you know, although people are obviously respectful and, you know, marking occasion, I don't think they have that um, sort of blind, ad, you know, adoration for the monarchy that you get in other parts of the, of the county. I think it's probably safe to say that the that ad, that level of adoration was perhaps more at the queen as a person as as a, a figure that 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 performed you know um, tireless public service for seventy mm-hmm. years. There was a respect for that, yes. and and a respect for the fact that her family now have lost lost you know a, a mother, a grandmother, a great grandmother. Um, yeah, you know, I, I was seeing. You know, you, 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 when you look at social media, you look at your feeds. You, it seemed to be ranging from those who were absolutely distraught that their monarch had passed to those who were um, reflective of all the service she had done yes. for us um, yes. and, and were able to detach maybe feelings they might have towards the monarchy, but looking at the individual and looking at what she had given. And, and that was where the outpouring appeared to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a big memorial service of uh, sort of Thanksgiving and um, commemoration at the uh, cathedral this weekend. Right, uh, which basically open to everyone. I think it's uh, six p.m. Sunday. Okay, there's a few things like that going on, and you know, the, the I think the cathedral, um, their focus has been very much on, you know, the the monarch, as it were. Yeah. Um, 
and people like the uh, Lord Lieutenant Robert Voss, who's who is her representative in um, in Hertfordshire. Yeah. So if you're interested in in attending that, as as Matt just said, there Sunday at six p.m. at St Albans Cathedral is a service of commemoration and thanksgiving for um for yeah for Queen Elizabeth yeah. II, who who has been obviously had been there on several occasions. Yeah. Um, nineteen. 19- 52 being the first okay. um she was there she'd only been um on the throne for less than six months okay and she uh, she attended and she was back a, a few years later um for the maundy service and apparently this was the first occasion since the reign of charles the first when it had been held outside london okay which is interesting i noticed as well the the cathedral are showing the funeral on monday and they're doing a live broadcast from 10 a.m uh, and so people can go along and uh, if they want to watch that in the cathedral, yeah, they, they yeah. can do that as well. I mean, Monday's going to be a very strange day. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting, isn't it, that, that it looks like just about everywhere is going to be closed now. It, so I guess it'll be like Christmas Day almost, won't yes, it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I would have thought, you know, most of the pubs would be open, places like that. A, a, a few have said they're not. I although thought, really? I, I saw I saw something in the news that was a couple <clears> of, cha- I think one big chain have said they will be open. Mm. But um, I think some others were... I imagine they might open in the evening yeah. or maybe yeah. they'll be, you know, certainly during the time of the funeral, they may not be open. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, Did, something else that might be of interest to listeners is, is something about what happens behind the scenes. And you touched on this at the beginning as to how you deal with this and how prepared you actually are. Because when I was at, uh, at when I was on the radio, we had to prepare for this. We had to train for this mm-hmm. because at any given moment, um, we had to go into what they called in, in radio obit mode. And I think television has the same phrase. Yes, you saw them doing it uh, immediately following the announcement. Yeah. And we had, and, and so every live presenter on, on the radio station I was on had to be ready to switch to obit mode if something happened while they were live on air and had to be able to monitor if anything happened. And, and it was effectively, it was if it was the death of. Um, you know, the head of state or another leading figure or a national emergency mm. and we had to be ready to go into to those things and certainly I remember being on air at a time five or six years ago where the Duke of Edinburgh had had, had a period of ill health and everyone was on tender hooks thinking we might have to yeah. we might have to switch yeah. to this and 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 uh, you know in that instance he pulled through uh, but there was there was that thing and I gather that new, news outlets often have a whole library of obits ready you know obituaries ready to i go. used to work with someone who worked for a press association he was their royal correspondent so he'd, he'd worked closely with members of the royal family and when he left there he was brought back in every so often to update their obituaries yeah. um you know with the event you know any new details from the last few months you know if anyone be married or whatever mm. and he, he basically worked on all of those throughout throughout the rest of his career and i, th- I think in some in some national in, um news outlets they even would it wouldn't just be royal figures they would have you know other you know politicians leading celebrities other such people they would have because if you hear about a celebrity that's died it's pretty quick that you're watching a news thing where they they show you a little package about that person so they that, that they must have so much of this stuff i mean it it sounds kind of morbid but i suppose it's a, it's a fact of life isn't it and yes. they have to be ready for it yes who's it died recently and they had a package together very very fast i mean it was now um another major figure <laughs> you know, i'll have to wait till you see those things at the end of the year and tell you who's died because yeah. you sort of, sort of forget but um yes i mean we had um what what for our for our from our perspective we had um an obit- obituary ready 
and we we wanted it to come from one part of the company rather than everyone else publish everyone publishing multiple versions of it so that was part of it but we also had um uh, all of the sort of the background the details when she'd been to the the county we had all the photos we'd already put, put together i mean a lot of this actually came you know in during the platinum jubilee because we prepared it all and then you you sort of spring interaction with the you know getting the tributes from the key people although so much you know we live in that sort of age where so many people are ready and and as i say that you know they were they were coming out thick and, and fast in in um in the next edition of the hearts advertiser uh, will there be sort of um like stories about uh, about like the times that the queen has been to st albans the, the yes the yes. way she touched this community yeah there's a, yeah there are details on, on that um and you know and then a lot of the the tributes as well um you know that it's sort of we we exist as a as a pub, you know a paper record really, and you ha- you have to pass you sort of pass um, pass on that information to successive generations. You know, if someone goes to the archives in fifty years, we want that to be there. Yeah, they say. Okay, well, thank you for that. Thanks about that. I think it's quite illuminating, and and it sounds like quite quite the fitting tribute to uh, to the passing of Her Majesty. Uh, and and I suppose as well, will it be, it won't be that much time before the coronation of the king. Uh, yeah, it could be, it could be. Um, I mean, it was a, a year, I think, um, when Queen, Queen Elizabeth's succession and her coronation. So mm. you have to have a, you know, an event like that's going to take a lot of organising anyway. Mm. Just thinking, I suppose, that the, there's a period of time between mourning the loss of, of the Queen and then celebrating the, the rise of the King. Um, well, it, the, you know, but the accession proclamation had to happen immediately. So, yeah. you know, we people were singing god save the king you know literally hours or or a day or so afterwards mm. yes you know. uh, i i saw uh, something on social media from uh, the 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 soprano is she a soprano Catherine jenkins yeah and she was saying she was thrilled to be recording the first version of god save the king uh-huh. that day which was yeah yeah uh, i think it was at the weekend you know and um, yeah, mm-hmm. it, it's it's going to be it's all going to take a little bit of getting used to isn't it like now to talk about the prince of wales it's, it's, it's someone else, someone else. Yeah. Uh, yeah. and and yeah th- these sorts of things are are going to take us all a while to get used to apparently it was eight or nine years from the queen's coronation to when her uh, image first appeared on any um any money was it yeah apparently it wasn't yeah. until uh, i think i read that it was around about 1960 when the first sort of coins and banknotes with featuring her started entering circulation yeah. well i remember when i was a boy there were coins with the king on Still in circulation. Yeah, old. There was it was old money coins because you could use like um, two shillings, I think, as a ten p, and a shilling as a five p, and all that sort of stuff. So, because mm. I think I guess they didn't want to recall it and melt it and go through all the expense of putting it out there again. Well, yeah, yeah, the cost of it and stamps yeah. as well yeah. and things like that. Um, I seem to remember being very young and seeing gr on post boxes mm-hmm. sometimes yeah. and not realizing yeah. that that was referring to to the the king. But you know, mm-hmm. uh, to, to Queen Elizabeth's yeah. father. Yeah, you know who I'm going to speak to, and that's the rug shop in um, Ferrodham Road. Okay, I, just you just made me think of it because they've got um, a, a license, as it were, or a, the, the the rights to have large um, rugs of the Queen on a stamp. They they're the only places that are allowed to do it, and obviously they won't have that anymore. <laughs> no, I did read somewhere that you know how an awful lot of products that we buy have have a Raw crest on them it, yeah. yeah apparently that's dissolved now yeah and they have up to two years to remove that from their products and there's a whole new process if they want to be 
because mm. it's, it's, it's for the person, not, yeah. the, not the position. Yes. Yeah, yeah. so, so, so if you have your bottle of what brand of brown sauce and, and it's got, um, and it's got that crest on it, it would, that meant that it was like used within the household of, of mm. Queen Elizabeth and you'd have to reapply now uh, for them to consider whether it would be, um, you know, the, whether the king wishes to, to, um, put his crest on that. Yeah. Um, Interesting. By royal appointment or something. Yes, isn't it? that's it. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Well, I'd like to say that this podcast is by royal appointment, but uh, it's not. Well, it's not the British royal family. But anyway, <laughs> uh, we'll have more from Matt Adams a bit later. Our very own uh, literary correspondent Claire Hobber is with us now uh, for another look at some book suggestions uh, for this month. Hello, Claire. Hi. Good to good to be back after the summer. Yes, yes. So um, we are looking this month, and I don't think we've looked at this before. Although, forgive me if we have. But um, memoirs. You, you, you've chosen memoirs as your sort of theme for your book suggestions this time round. Yeah, memoir is the new rock and roll. And actually, if you were to read these three, you would see why. Uh, one of the things I really like about memoir, apart from the little frisson that this is actually true unlike fiction, is also it tends to be a little bit shorter. I think I think to make a story out of your life, you need to think what's relevant to the particular story I'm telling. And then I get the sense that people get really into it and they, they really pare it down to an essential story. Because I think in anybody's life, there are many stories, you know, depending on which strands you wanted to follow. So the people who've written really good memoirs, who are really excellent at it, have have been very selective, and that produces very sort of elegant, well-written, short, readable memoirs. So I, I'm I'm a big fan. I'm going to be reading much more of this now. Okay, now tell me, um, this, this might well sh- um, highlight more of my ignorance here. But is there a difference between a memoir and an autobiography? Oh, so I don't know. Um, I have assumed you know, that they're pretty much interchangeable titles. Well, I'm hoping so. Whether an autobiography... So the memoirs definitely follow a line of story. And whether an autobiography would have to contain or would be expected to contain more of the facts. So um, without following one particular line, you might actually perhaps be more chronological and and try and encompass everything that you've done that year and so forth. So so a memoir could pick a a story or selected stories from your life. And, and, and whereas an autobiography perhaps is a little bit more all encompassing covering. Yeah, I am. I am making this up as we go along, Danny, but but that's my guess. Yeah. We could probably (laughs) Google this, but, but yes, I think so. I think an autobiography might be more like an official sort of, have more of a historical slant perhaps you know these things happened whereas memoir if I'm right um has a story slant and in fact one of the memoirs I've chosen although it has a very strong story element to it um it's called by the author a living autobiography okay that's yeah well we'll we'll come on to that well yeah we'll talk about that in a minute but um yeah so I found I know uh, two authors who ghostwrite um, autobiographies. I know one who ghost had ghostwritten. In fact, he said it wasn't really ghostwriting because he got his name on. In fact, both of them got their names on the cover. So mm. apparently, that that that's quite a status thing if you're a writer, but you're 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 basically you're able to negotiate that your name appears on the cover as well. 
um, because often, you know, you, you just get paid an amount to write someone's story. You you interview them a few times, you throw it together, but it, it it's presented as if they wrote it, not you. Uh, and one was um, the uh, the autobiography of Tony Adams, the uh, former Arsenal footballer who's currently on Strictly. He's one of the Strictly people this year. But um, but yeah, um, it's a, a guy who's a, was a sports journalist for, for most of his life. And, he, and, and he's been on the podcast a couple of times, a guy called Ian Ridley, and he wrote the book with Tony Adams and they're old friends. And, and, and in fact, they've even done a tour together, you know, like one of those, an audience with type things where mm, Ian yeah. Ridley asks the questions of Tony Adams on stage. And the other one was a guy and the book's out at the moment. And we're talking with the author on the podcast in um, hopefully in a couple of weeks, but um, it's a guy called Lee Samson, who was the, one of the bodyguards for princess Diana. And he's also been a bodyguard for Tom Cruise. And he's talking about being a bodyguard. And and it's uh, the guy who hosts our film show here on, on the Sonoma's podcast, Howard Linsky, who uh, wrote that with him and was able to get his name on the cover alongside him. But it seems to me like there is quite a skill involved because if often people get have to get professional writers to, to do it, I, I'm guessing it's not just sim- as simple as saying, well, I was born X number of years ago in this place and then I went to this school, that there must be there's far more of a, a skill to it. I think probably we all encounter that the first time when we were a child and we somebody gives us a diary for Christmas and you start trying to keep it and you go, get up, brush my teeth, had breakfast, after breakfast, went to school and so forth. And you suddenly go, wait, if I write all this down, I won't be doing anything else today. And then you go, well, how do I know which bits to write down? What actually is relevant? And then suddenly you begin to see that pretty much anything you write has got to have some narrative drive and some story in it. And uh, I think it's probably probably until you actually have a go at writing something like that, you don't realise what the skill is in writing, you know. So I think it's it's brilliant that these well-known figures have used excellent ghostwriters to convey their story and probably to help them to shape and uh, and sort of trim their story so that it so that it will be appealing and will be um, satisfying to the people that read it. Okay. Before we come on to our first one, are there particular ones that, in any of the time that you've ever you know been reading, um, that that jumped out at you? Like, have you got particular ones? If somebody said to you, oh, "I've never really read a memoir, an autobiography," you know, is there like a particular famous or influential person, and you think, "Oh yeah, you know what? I love their book." I think a lot of books are autobiographical and sometimes probably we think we're reading something that's autobiographical and it isn't. It's an easy mistake to make. So when I run my creative writing classes, we always have to refer to the person in the story as the protagonist, Um, even though we're pretty sure that it is actually the writer writing about themselves. You always say the protagonist and give them that little bit of wiggle room then they're allowed to say, oh, it's me if they want to. Um, But no, I just sort of, um yeah that's a great invitation what's been the best but I actually I think the thing I have enjoyed probably most this year was the Deborah Levy that I'm about to talk about and it kept me do you know I hardly ever ever read things twice and I read this and then started again and read it again and I thought about it so much 
Okay. So but I'm going to go with the, this. Wasn't the response I was hoping for, really. I, I half imagined you were going to tell me some really worthy figures. You see, you're going to say, oh, I love the, I don't know, the autobiography of, of Mandela, of, of Barack Obama, of, of, I don't know, Mother Teresa, something like that. And then I, I was just, then I was sort of waiting to, for me to tell you that like, mine was like a, a, a comedian and an actor. Uh, but uh, but no, um, don't worry. Go on okay. then, Dan. Which, which is your favourite? <laughs> I know, it's just... So. Well, one of the one of the most entertaining ones I ever read was Frank Skinner's autobiography, oh. which which he went to great lengths to point out he wrote himself. He he's he's got a master's in English, so he said he didn't need a ghost. In, he writes about it in the book that he didn't need a ghostwriter. He was quite happy to do it himself. And apparently, a, a lot of his celebrity friends were sort of saying, "Oh, who did you get to write yours?" And that, nobody believed him when he kept saying, "No, no, I wrote it myself." And um and and he didn't do it in a in a linear way. He because he, he, in fact, he writes right at the beginning of the book that most people he, he thinks who read autobiographies get really bored of the early stuff. They just want to skip to the good bits, like when the person became famous and well known. And so he he interspersed it. So one chapter would be about his his earliest life, and then one chapter would be right now, and then and he sort of the next chapter was the next bit of his early life, and then the chapter after that was, you know, very recent again. And, and he kept he kept jumping back and forth. Um, in the way that he told his story, which made it far more readable, because you, you know, the, the good bits, as it were, were, were interspersed with with the the early background stuff. But, yeah, it uh, doesn't surprise me at all. I've always thought of him as a proper writer. He writes his own material, and uh, clearly a very bright and and thoughtful person as well. So it doesn't yeah. surprise me at all that he wrote a really good the, the other the other autobiography. Well, the other book that. I would have recommended the same thing was um, uh, Roger Moore. Now he's written, or someone has written on his behalf, three or four autobiographies. I think at le- I think he's done at least two, maybe three autobiographies, um, which I am sure he probably had help with. But back in the seventies, he published a, a, effectively a diary that covered from the period when he got the phone call to say he was going to be James Bond up until the premiere of the first Bond film and a diary of what happened to him in the meantime. So all the, all, you know, the press announcement that he was the next guy, the fact that he had to go on tour with Sean Connery, promoting Sean Connery's last Bond film. And he said it was one of the easiest jobs he ever had to do because all he had to do was sit in the background and smoke a cigar. And, and Sean Connery did all the work, talked to all the journalists and, and doing everything else. And, and he, and he talks about how he went to a restaurant with his son when his son was about 12 and he took his son out for a treat. And his son said to him something like, he says, oh, dad, you know, are you the strongest man in this room? Could you beat up everyone in this room? And and, and he sort of looked around and he, he, he sort of thought, yeah, you know, I'm in reasonably good shape for my age. Yeah, yes, son, I could. And, and apparently his son said, but what about if James Bond walked into this room? And he went, well, son, you, you know, I am going to be James Bond. You know, I'm, I'm starting shooting the film next week. And he went, no, 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 not you, Dad. What if the real James Bond, what if Sean Connery walked in now? And he realised, he said, that if even his son doesn't think he's the real James Bond, he had no hope of ever filling his shoes. This was the biggest mistake he was going to make of his life and his career. And it was all this self-deprecating humour and doubt throughout the 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 book and it was just fascinating and it you could hear Roger Moore's voice throughout it and 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 for me I was just you know I, I loved it and for many years the book was out of print but I think you can get hold of it again but uh anyway oh, that's interesting isn't it because obviously that does sound just like Roger Moore's voice that's the voice he always adopted in interviews wasn't it humorous yeah. and self-deprecating so well maybe he didn't have any help 
Well, I was know, more I mean, surprised so... when you said him than, yeah. than Frank Skinner, but maybe he didn't because if, it, if it's his authentic voice. Well, possibly. I mean, the other thing I guess with somebody like Frank Skinner is, you know, as a comedian, he he works with words. He is a writer who performs mm. his material, whereas an actor is performing other people's material. So maybe an actor might have help with an autobiography, whereas perhaps a comedian doesn't need it. I don't know. Actors always have anecdotes, don't they? Like when you see them on talk shows, they've always got very polished anecdotes. Yeah. So there is that extent. I presume they've done that for themselves or somebody has helped them with that. So maybe it's like a string of his best anecdotes. I guess so. I tell you, the other thing, because this book covered a period of about 18 months or two years or so from the moment he got the phone call telling him he was, he'd been given the role of Bond up until the, the premiere, the the, the world royal premiere thing at Leicester Square. But he said part of it, they filmed it in, I think it was Louisiana in America. And he met with the governor, who was a guy called Jim Garrison. And Jim Garrison used to be a prosecutor, and Kevin Costner played him in the film JFK. He was the guy, Jim Garrison, that who the only person who ever brought a prosecution regarding the assassination of JFK. And at the time, in the early 70s, the famous bit of footage that we've now all seen of, of Kennedy being hit by bullets and the and the direction the bullets came in this was co- uh, classified it was confidential that the footage was not available and roger moore says how he and the producer and the director of the movie were, were invited to the governor's house for um lunch and he showed them the footage and he said in it that he said i have no doubt in my mind that there was somebody shooting from the front because we, we've he showed us the footage and and now anyone who's ever seen JFK or has subsequently seen any documentaries would all have seen that. But in the early 70s, that was quite a thing. And he writes about it in his in, in, in this diary. And it is, again, it's just fascinating to get a little snapshot of history from that time, you know, because mm. it, it doesn't relate to, to Roger Moore being Bond at all. But it's just something that happened to him along the way. Anyway. Yeah, maybe that's yeah. Going back to maybe that's also the autobiography thing, you know, that that, as you say, it's like. It's got a place there because this happened to Roger Moore, but it's not following tightly a story. Yeah. So yeah. yeah anyway. No, and then it's something something about world history, isn't it? And about the aftermath yeah, of JFK, exactly. and you, but you're seeing it through the eyes of an actor who 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 brushed alongside it for a little bit at one point in history. Mm. Uh, but let's talk about your first choice now. So you just mentioned it there uh, a moment ago, uh, Deborah Levy, uh, "Things I Don't Want to Know." So this is a a three-part living autobiography, but really, really very crafted. So the third part, which is called Real Estate, was published only last year. But I've gone back to the first part because probably that's where you'd start, um, which is published in 2014. And it's called Things I Don't Want to Know. And I guess it starts by posing a question. It starts from Deborah Levy talking about her current life. And she's clearly, something is very wrong. She finds herself crying on escalators. Whenever she goes on an escalator, she finds herself weeping. And it's the sense of being carried upward, she thinks, that does it. So, of course, the reader is then like, why is she crying on escalators? And then it goes back into her early life. And what an early life it was. So she was white in South Africa, but white Jewish. So not as racially discriminated against as black people, but certainly um, definitely had to put up with a degree of, well, a large degree of anti-Semitism from the other whites. And her father was um, 
an activist, an anti-apartheid activist who was imprisoned and knew Nelson Mandela and so forth. As a result of that, her mother was finding it difficult to cope with two children and sent Deb the young Deborah Levy off to her godmother. And her godmother lived in this horrible, dysfunctional family with um, a sort of very domineering husband who really didn't think much of Deborah Levy's family, who were black sympathisers and Jews, you know, and um, was, was horrid to the young child. Well, the, the godmother was failing really to stand up for her and had her own problems by the look of it. So, um, and Deborah Levy was put in a, a school run by nuns and actually against the tropes of modern fiction, these nuns were terribly kind. They were so kind that they didn't really challenge her in any way and assumed she couldn't read and write and taught her all over again. It's, it's nice right. to hear that, isn't it? Because yeah. so often the, the stereotypical, as soon as you mention nuns, you think, oh, here we go, evil, nasty, you know, it, it's, it's, but that it's nice to hear because I imagine the vast majority are exactly that, aren't they? It's, it's, it, you know, we, we, what we hear about is a very small minority, but it somewhat uh, colours it, doesn't it? Yeah, indeed. Um, so they, actually, I think, do you know, now I'm thinking about this, I think there might have been the odd beating, but not Deborah Levy. She, they were kind to her for some reason. Right. And she, she's this little child who probably already, I don't know, affected. I, I think one of the points she's trying to make is that there was so much wrong with that society and it comes out in all sorts of different places. It comes out, you know, in people's personal lives and the, the wounds that they bear and so forth. And her particular noticeable affliction was that she barely talked so she was you know obviously bright and has become articulate and so forth but um she says to become a writer i had to learn to interrupt and i had to speak up and to speak a little louder and then even louder and then just to speak in my own voice which is not loud at all so it's, it's interesting i think that and the the memoir traces her really finding her voice and learning to object. Okay. But, uh, so this is Things I Don't Want to Know, which is the first of three autobiographies that, that she's written. Yes, three. Thank you for the signal. Three autobiographies <laughs> that she's um, that, that, that uh, Deborah Levy has written. Obviously, she's got a long way to go yet to hit the, uh, the, the seven autobiographies that Katie Price has so far written. Um, but, uh, but nonetheless, I guess it, you've got to start somewhere, haven't you? Oh, what brilliant fact. So seven. Mind you, what a life. What a life, actually. Yeah. She's probably got yeah. loads to, to write about, in fact. I, I somebody, there's an anecdote, I hope she doesn't mind me sharing it. Um, a friend of mine was on an aeroplane and there was a man with a dandling, a lovely baby on his knee. And she said, do you mind if I play with your baby? And the guy gives her an odd look and he's sort of sitting there smiling and she's just chatting to the baby and so forth. And then after, she, I think it was while she was queuing for the loo anyway, so eventually her turn came up and then she went back to her seat. And the woman next to her informed her that although it was a lovely baby, the person holding the baby had been Peter Andre. So that was... <laughs> and my, my friend hadn't noticed. She'd just been playing with this baby, Katie Price's baby. Wow. So. <laughs> I did hear a thing about... This is horrible, really, but I'm going to say it anyway. That um, somebody said to her, because apparently she, she's written two series of children's books, 11 novels and, and seven autobiographies. Um, and uh, it... it uh, Somebody else said she hasn't written any of them. She probably hasn't read. She probably hasn't read that many books, let alone written that many. But uh, 
anyway there you go i do remember a talk show with a um a member of the spice girls mel b and they were trying to she was there to publicize her autobiography which had just come out and i can't remember which presenter it was but they were asking her questions about it and she was just staring at them blankly and they, they said look i know you probably didn't write this but you should at least have read it you know so yeah i mean it it, it is uh well, I don't know. It makes me feel sorry for for like proper authors, you know, who 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 don't get anywhere near the uh, the spotlight that a celebrity author would get. Yet they probably wrote all of the words in their book rather than just some of them. Yeah, well, let's um, hope the ghostwriters got handsomely paid because they are proper writers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, that's our first book choice uh, this month. Uh, the first memoir that we have chosen. Uh, that's Things I Don't Want to Know by Deborah Levy. Hi, I'm Chris Aikman. Join me, local author Howard Linsky, and St Albans podcast producer Sam Rolfe for the St Albans Film Guide. Each week, one of us will guide you through the new releases at the cinema and on streaming services. We'll also give you our choice of the best films to watch on UK free-to-air TV for the forthcoming week. So if you're a film lover, join us for a chat about all things movie-related every week as part of the St Albans podcast. New episodes will be released every Friday morning, for more information, visit sullivanspodcast.com or find us where any good podcasts are found. We're back with Matt. Here I am. Hello. All right. Um, moving away from um, the death of Her Majesty uh, to what is actually a, a really quite a big news, local news story uh, we're bringing to you exclusively here. Um, the company that has produced St. Albans Pantomime every Christmas for over a decade is suing the District Council. For compensation, £600,000. Now, they uh, spent months getting ready for last year's production of Snow White when um, uh, council inspectors discovered asbestos um, contamination in the Auburn Arena. And they shut the pantomime down seven days into its run. Oh, Uh, no, they didn't. Oh, yes, they did. It didn't come back. Um, All the musicians, the crew, the actors told to go home and not return. Um, while this whole investigation took part and while this was happening without any discussion or consultation the contractors destroyed all the sets the hand-painted sets that they've used for years and years and years and um, the full lighting rig which was hired from another company okay so they you know they, they thought they would that it was justified to do this um, but um, the um, the company evolution productions have been contacting the council for um, in, uh, in insurance claim been completely ignored for months and months and months <laughs> nothing they haven't heard anything um now they've eventually had to take out legal action um for something that ultimately could have been avoided that's terrible because surely insurance should have covered there would that. be insurance yeah the, the council's, the council's insurance, insurance the, the building yes they you know you must have some sort of public liability um you know, they were left without a set, a huge bill for the lighting rig, let alone all the fees for the actors mm. and musicians. Well, and they would have had a contract. The Evolution, mm-hmm. Evolution would have had a contract yeah. to provide that pantomime for that, you know, and, and, and it would have all been legal. And part of that contract would have been, in return, the Auburn Arena is providing a venue. And then they didn't provide that. They had to pull the venue for safety reasons. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. But they broke the contract. They they owe evolution money for that the evolution yeah. shouldn't be out yeah. of pocket but for they, that. And, and, and ultimately the council wouldn't be because they just came off the insurance company one would hope yeah. if, if they've got the right insurance in yeah. place but, so, but it's the fact that nobody's contacted them you know they've not answered any calls uh, or emails and everything they had to go to this point and the, the, you know they're actually putting on this year's production as well you know they're jacking the beanstalk with Barry off EastEnders so, I mean it, it, <laughs> 
well, and, and now, of course, they're going to be in the very late stages of that production as well. Yeah, know, that, I mean, there's no way they'll pull it or anything like that. It's not, but, you know, they need the money. They've had to sell loads of their costumes and things. You know, it's a, they're a family firm. They're not, you know, um, th- they don't have that sort of cash. They, You know, everybody relies on that revenue each mm. year to, 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 you know, to, for the following year. So has there been any response from the council? Council said, oh, because there's legal, the prospect of legal action, they're very limited to what they say. Uh, ensuring the health and safety of the public and staff at the arena was our paramount concern. We had to close it to allow the asbestos issue to be dealt with. It was the right thing to do. No one's disputing that. Why didn't, haven't they answered, answered the, any of the other points? But that, isn't, isn't this how like, the public feel whenever we hear a flipping politician speak? Yeah. You know, you yeah. think the answer they gave, that wasn't the question. That wasn't no. the answer to the question. No. no one's questioning why they closed it. There was asbestos. It was dangerous. They had to act quickly. Well done for acting quickly. But that's not the question. No, what's happening with the compensation? Yeah, that's really, really bad. And I, I mean, that, that's the sort of thing, if that blows up and gets bigger, and who well, knows, that could yeah. put a question mark over this year's Panto. There'd be a fair few local voters who will not be happy about that. Exactly, yeah. Council need to sort this quickly. And you're not, it's not just the money that the, it makes for um, the arena and so on. It's, it's all the visitor economy cash because you get people coming from outside St Albans, eating here, drinking here, spending money in the shops beforehand. It's a massive, massive issue, mm. and it's shocking that it's, it's had to get come to this stage. Well, let's hope that a resolution is reached quickly because this maybe legal action has been initiated that can soon be headed off if they just kind of pull their heads out of the sand and, and address the issue and 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 deal with it. They they can stop lengthy legal Absolutely. proceedings. They can just because who's them. paying for that? We are. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that, that'll come out. Of, you know, council yeah. tax money. That's, that's really bad. Isn't really it? Really bad. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, let's hope that that reaches a speedy resolution. We're back with our very own literary correspondent, Claire Hobber, and we are looking at memoirs this month. Uh, The next memoir that Claire has chosen is Educated by Tara Westover. Yeah, I'm actually, I confess, I haven't finished this yet. I'm still reading it um, and it is absolutely gripping. So Tara Westover writes about her childhood in a valley in Idaho, um, they lived in the middle of nowhere. The nearest town was only 269 people, which doesn't even barely qualify as a hamlet, I don't think, in this country. And um, Tara Westover's father became increasingly isolated and survivalist and kept the children out of school. Um, and at least four of them, four of the seven, didn't even have birth certificates. He was so clean, so keen to keep off-grid and off-radar um, and they could get quite ill and not be allowed to access proper medicine. The mother was a herbalist, and so it was um, sort of herbal medicine, traditional medicine that was that was used for them. And um, worst of all, I guess, in many ways, they weren't allowed to school. And um, so hence the title of the piece, Educated. It, uh, it turns out that Tara Westover, who you know, only learnt to read from one of her older brothers, Rebet, she thinks. Um, turns out she must have been very bright. So when she finally got to go to college at 17, having never been to school, she, um, once she had, so she had a lot of different things going on at the same time. Not only was she in full-time education for the first time in her life at 17, but for the first time in her life, she was really out of this valley and out of the terrible sort of suffocating grip of her 
domineering father and, and out in the big wide world. So she had a lot to get used to. But once she found her feet, um, then did it astonishingly well and got various kinds of scholarship to Harvard and to Cambridge UK um, and writes incredibly well, very um, sort of flavoured, seasoned language, um, conveying a real picture of what it must have been like to grow up in this um, unusual environment. Uh, the parents were were Mormons and the religiosity sort of played a part in their isolation, but obviously it wasn't the whole story as there are plenty of Mormons who live very normal lives, you know? Mm. Um, that, uh, it, it's... Um... You know, it's interesting when you when you when you talk about that, and particularly that the slant with the Mormons, because that does seem to be something at the moment that is somewhat in vogue. There's a very popular TV series that looks like it might just get an Emmy Award for the English actor Andrew Garfield, where he plays a Mormon detective investigating, a, and it's a true life story from the 80s, where where the, about this woman that was was and her baby that were horribly murdered, and and um, it's set. It was in it happened in um, Salt Lake City in Utah, and it's all. The, the backdrop of, of the Mormons and how they are and, and, and the factions and the splinters within it. And, you know, was the crime by fundamentalist Mormons? And it, it seems like somebody else was telling me that, that there's, there's another book at the moment, I think that's out, that it also has a backdrop that's something to do with the Mormon, um, the Mormon uh, religion. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, this, this isn't, uh, this isn't that new a book, so it's clearly not jumping onto the back of that. But uh, but it's just interesting. There seems to be a fair bit about Mormons at the moment doing the rounds. The whole book, the, the Twilight series about vampires and werewolves, which was so incredibly popular, was written actually by a Mormon. And um, when you know that, you can see there are some very, I think there are some very good values in there. You know about sort of self restraint and things like that, and and you know being kind to other people. Um, there are a lot of really good religious values actually in there which is why i was quite happy for my child to read all that yeah. and there, there is of course the book of mormon which is whoa that is kind of <laughs> i went i went to that just after i'd had a covid like virus and i was really not feeling very well and it was um uh, i was just finding it a little bit too much but my children thought it was hilarious and it was quite <laughs> strong stuff I have heard that. Um, as you were describing this as well, it reminded me of another book that I'm reading at the moment that you recommended uh, as a summer read. Admittedly, you recommended it last year and I'm a bit slow, but um, that there was something in the book where the crawdads sing, where they're talking about education and they're talking about this. And, and there's a bit where, where one of the characters helps the main protagonist to learn how to read. And he sort of says to her, congratulations, you know, you will never not be able to read again. You know, this from this point forward, you mm. you know, you can never not read. And and it was sort of it's fascinating because for, for the vast majority of people listening to this, I'm sure, you know, we all learned to read at a time when we probably can barely remember learning how to read. So we've just always read. Whereas if you learn a little bit later in life, you know, the difference that must make to you and, and the impact of that. Um and, 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 you know, that book, again, dealt with somebody who perhaps wasn't very well educated, but was incredibly smart and clever. Yeah. And I think I think actually the point that you get is right at the, the heart of it, that never being able to not read again. So once Tara Westover has been educated, and this is the book, bit of the book I haven't got to yet, I think she then does want to go and reconcile with her family again. But of course, she never can be the uneducated person that left there you know she never can 
completely believe what her dad tells her or her mother. She's she can't ever really go back on the education that she's got. So I'm really interested to see, you know, how she manages to navigate that. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's it's a really fascinating point, isn't it? That that you know when you you know, and it's the same with the character and where the cool dads sing. You know, you suddenly hit a point where you can no longer go back. You can no longer be somebody who couldn't read you're no longer somebody who isn't educated because that has fundamentally changed you and, and you you become a different person through that absolutely uh, yeah. okay so that's um that's educated by tara westover uh which is uh, uh the second memoir that claire hover has recommended this month the final one that we're going to look at is called this is not a pity memoir by abby morgan uh, that that's out this year so i become um, a big fan of the oeuvre of Abby Morgan because I've been watching the split on iPlayer, um, all three series of it, about a divorce lawyer whose own marriage is in peril um, and starring Nicola Walker. And uh, only to discover that Abby Morgan, the writer, has been going through a very successful screenwriter. I think she's also worked lucratively for Hollywood and so forth, but she's been going through the most horrible time at home. So her partner and the father of her two children called Jacob, he already had multiple sclerosis, but multiple sclerosis can move very slowly, particularly if it's treated well. And he was trying out a new drug, which um, gave him the most terrible seizures and he had to be put into a medically induced coma. And he slowly regained consciousness after sort of six months of this and was, I suppose he was like somebody who's had a bad stroke or somebody who's maybe afflicted by dementia, all sorts of, of symptoms that meant it took a long time for him to return to himself. And I think he never has completely, completely come back. He's, you know, he's he's got back most of his memories and his, you know, his personality, I think, has remained his personality. Um, but he's, I don't think he's fully mobile and I don't think he's sort of fully articulate. I think he talks slowly and with and effortfully. Mm. Um, so this woman who's having this amazing career was dealing with this at home and there are poignant moments like when he recognises everybody else but thinks she's an imposter and uh, things like, you know, when he when he really enjoys swimming, and um, that gives him, you know, that's giving him back some of what he once had. And I guess she probably doesn't know how it's going to work out. It's not a well-trodden path. She doesn't know what recovery is going to look like for him and how much of him she ever will get back. But again, it's just so well-written. You know, she writes really compelling, pacey dramas. So you can imagine that, especially when so much is happening in her own life, she can pick up the the relevancies the incidents the the poignant um moments and really convey it very very well and the ending is optimistic and and by the end much goes well and and i think the title tells you that she's choosing to make the very best of it um this is not a pity pity memoir so and i have to confess that i enjoyed this um not quite as a talking book i caught it on BBC and it's still there on BBC Sounds, uh, 
the the radio version of iPlayer. Um, this and uh, it's read by Nicola Walker, no doubt, because she's done so much work for Abby Morgan. Okay, there's probably a, a relationship there. It's beautifully read, really, really great listening. There's a lot of um, uh, books that have been. Um, uh, that have been abridged in that manner that the, uh, Radio 4 serialised them and they put them onto BBC on the BBC Sounds app that you can listen to them in their entirety. I mean, it's episodic, but all the episodes are there in, so you, you can listen to it. And, and, and it, is a, it is a good way of, of interacting with, with, with books. It, it's, um, it's not, it, I don't believe that these adaptations are unabridged. So, you know, you, it is edited, but it is often done in a way that doesn't take away the gist of, of what's there. And I think it, particularly if it's read by somebody who actually has a connection to the, to the author, um, as Nicola Walker does, because she stars in one of Abby Morgan's um, TV series, then uh, I imagine that that's going to have quite a, a, an impact and quite a poignancy. Yeah, I think, I think it works really well for something like this. The only time when I thought it didn't, because you're absolutely right, it's clearly abridged. The only time I didn't think it worked very well was for the the Margaret Atwood, um, the Testaments, which is the follow up to the long awaited follow up to the Handmaid's Tale, where there's a bit of there's a, there's a certain amount of mystery. If you abridge something and you decide that you're going to leave in take out loads of the fluff but keep in all the relevant clues, unfortunately, it becomes very obvious what the mystery is going to be. Do you see what I mean? So you've yeah. removed all the bits that that sort of obfuscate and you've left all the clues in. So I noticed that I think abridgment really didn't work very well because it kind of signposted too much what the big reveal was going to be. Okay. Um, the identity of the protagonist. So that's that's the only thing I would say. But anything that isn't a mystery or a whodunit, it probably works well for. Okay. So that's um, this is not a pity memoir by Abby Morgan, and and as Claire's just mentioned there, if, if you have access to BBC Sounds, you can actually find a version of that being read by Nicola Walker right now. Now, um, Claire, with regard to memoirs, uh, a question that occurred to me is, uh, do we need to know the author in order to be able to appreciate a memoir? Is it worth reading a memoir by somebody who we don't, if we're not familiar with the person? Well, I didn't know, and this this probably isn't very good of me, but I didn't actually know who Deborah Levy was before. She's, um, I think, a journalist and quite a literary writer. And other friends say they have read novels by her, but actually prefer... The memoir. So to me, she was a stranger who wrote very beautifully about her very interesting life. So and and actually Tara Westover, um, I have, you know, she does write other stuff. She writes apparently, I think, history and journalism. But I hadn't come across her except for this memoir, Educated. So it was own Abby Morgan. It's when I heard um that this very good i think i heard the memoir on the radio before i realized it was abby morgan's story and i thought i was interested already just because of the quality of the writing and of nicola walker's reading but now i'm very interested because i've just been enjoying your drama on tv but the other two i didn't have any relationship with before but the guys you were talking about earlier frank Sinner, skinner and um yeah, you might be Roger both counts there reading his book <laughs> i think not actually isn't he a very active member of, well he's, he's a practicing catholic isn't he and i know he he writes he about that quite swearing ex- yeah he writes about being a catholic quite extensively in the book and the and the dichotomy in his life you know because leading the sort of life that he's led whilst also at the same time having a faith and the struggles he, he's faced with that he, he's very honest about it um 
But uh, but yeah, so, so I guess in, in short, then the answer is no, we don't need to know the author to be able to appreciate a good memoir that, mm. that you can get just as much from it. So you shouldn't, I guess what I'm getting at is if somebody suggests to you, or you should read this memoir, it's really good, but you don't know who the person is, don't necessarily let that put you off. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's two reasons you can approach it. One is, as you say, because you're interested in Roger Moore becoming James Bond. It sounds like you weren't disappointed. It sounds like that was actually a great read. And the other is because you've heard that this is really well written. People are saying to you, this is really, you know, a, a very beautifully told story um, and a fascinating story. And that, you know, so you could go to it for either reason, couldn't you? And you probably wouldn't be disappointed. Yeah. Okay, so those are um, the uh, choices for this month from from uh, our correspondent Claire Hobber, uh, and the all the three books that have been recommended you can find now in the uh, podcast notes and also on our website at stalbanspodcast dot com. You can also find details about an upcoming creative writing course that Claire is running at Books on the Hill starting on Tuesday the twenty seventh of September ten am. Tell us more. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that enormously. We're going to be looking at the the most basic techniques of storytelling things like dialogue and characterization and um, while we're doing that we'll be writing stories at the same time to try out these techniques and um, I've run a similar course to this already this year and we came up with the most amazing stories it was beyond my expectations it's a wonderful atmosphere at Books on the Hill so I'm hoping that we're going to come up with some great fiction again. Okay, so if you're looking for a a four week course exploring the fundamental techniques of writing in the creative atmosphere of Books on the Hills reading room, then uh, follow the link that's in the podcast notes right now and on our website, stormspodcast.com. But you're not just resting there, are you? Because also in October, I mean, this this is a a bit of an advance notice, but on October the 15th in the cathedral, you're turning the lights on. It says there's something about your illuminate, moments of illumination. What does that mean exactly? Yeah, moments of illumination. On, I, well, I probably will be turning the lights on in the room that we use. I do have to do that. Um, but, yeah, so the, the cathedral's got a wonderful um, light show coming up in the autumn half term as it has the last few years. And um, I thought, how can that feed into a writing workshop? And actually, the great thing about a piece of fiction, particularly a short story, is there's usually a moment when either the reader or the main character realises something. And that's kind of all you've got to do to make a story. You, you know, there hasn't got to be lots going on, but there's got to be a moment when something changes. And very often that is just that somebody realises something. You don't need to see necessarily what they do as a result, but there could be the hint that, from now on they're not going to be such a doormat or from now on they're going to try harder or do you know what I mean or from now on they're going to give up you know it's so but there's usually a moment of illumination and I'm going to be looking at those moments of illumination again seeing we have two hours to produce our own little moment of fiction around it so we're going to be writing we're going to be thinking about a moment of illumination for ourselves okay that's uh yeah moments of illumination on earth the morning of October the 15th at St Albans Cathedral. And again, more information uh, on that can be found if you click the link that's in the episode uh, notes right now and on our website at stalbanspodcast.com. Uh, Claire, thank you very much. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you again around about the same time next month. Thank you. I'll see you then, Danny. Hi, I'm Elspeth Jackman, inviting you to listen to my podcast One to One with Elspeth. Find a local person with a story and I'll be there to draw out all those little details you want to know about. If I'm fascinated, so will you be. 
Each week I'll be talking to an interesting character who has a tale to tell. And the beauty of it is you can listen whenever you want to. To find the podcast, go to your podcasting platform of choice and search for the St. Albans Podcast. Alternatively, go to stalbanspodcast.com slash Elspeth. That's one-to-one with Elspeth, part of the St. Albans Podcast in association with the Hearts Advertiser. You never know, you could be my next guest. Uh, one more news story now from Matt Adams before we wrap things up for another edition of this here podcast of ours. Matt. Yes, this is the um, f- uh, interesting story uh, Tuesday afternoon when um, h- h- part of St Albans had to be evacuated um, around Belmont Hill and Hollywood Hill, that sort of area, after two uh, landscape gardeners discovered a hand grenade in the back, back of someone's garden. Um, they were doing some work and they dug it out and suddenly realised what it was. <laughs> And so the street was evacuated and the police had to do a controlled explosion. Uh, now, this w- reminded me of, a pr- of another similar thing like, uh, when there was, someone was doing some gardening over um, sort of the Fleetville area some years ago and they found another bomb buried in, in there. So um, there are a few of these obviously around because I think we, you know, it's probably targeted here during the, during the Second World War. Um, oh, so, so, so they, have they established it, it was quite no, an old one? No, but um, I've... At the moment, they haven't said any, any more than that, but I can't see where, you know, a hand grenade would come from otherwise. But then, uh, do you remember some years ago, there was a, another story about a, um, a man who had a collection of um, munitions in his shed, like a, basically a museum, and there was a full-armed raid on there. And yeah. it, was all de- it was all decommissioned stuff and everything, but loads of it was taken away. He'd been collecting it for years. Yeah, I mean, I, d- I do remember... and. Because at the time, wasn't it that there was a bit of an overreaction as to how he was being treated, that he yeah. was a collector and, and yeah. they were sort of treating him like he might have been a terrorist. That's and right. That this was just like a, an old bloke who collected yeah. memorabilia. Yeah. That's uh, funny. Yes, a few of these things that sprung to mind. But yeah, so if you are digging in the garden, you find anything that looks vaguely military-like, I would be careful because <laughs> there are shells around. And, yeah. You know, they do say if you dig deep enough in St Albans, you'll, you know, you'll find all sorts of treasures. We have a you know a, a footprint here that dates back sort of thousands of years. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's. I mean, we, you know, we live in a very historical place, don't we? Yeah. So, uh, but you know that that is the case. But everyone's anyway, safe. Everyone's That's okay. Been... It was all done um, and over with in a matter of hours. So, good job all round. Yeah. Okay. Well, well done, everyone. Uh, and that concludes another edition of the St Albans podcast. Thank you to Claire Hobber for our books feature. She'll be back around at the same time next month. Next week. It's uh, the return of our health correspondent, Alan Bellinger, with more Health Matters. And, of course, Matt and I will be back chewing the fat over local news as well. Find out more about us and what we do and what else we offer via our website, albanspodcast.com And you can also find us over on the social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, where we are, where we are, stalbanspodcast.com. At stalbanspodcast. You should know this stuff. I know. I don't even know my own website. Thanks for listening to this edition of the St. Albans Podcast with Danny Smith. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or a podcast platform of your choice. This will help us reach more listeners. Join us, the St. Albans Podcast, next Wednesday for more news, views and reviews. In the meantime, commit no nuisance. Produced by Samantha Rolfe. Logo and artwork by David Ellis. This is an independent production in association with the Heart Advertiser. 
If you would like to become a community partner or a sponsor of the podcast, please visit stalbanspodcast.com for more details.